Acts 13, uh, verses 13 through 30. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went down into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, savior Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no. But behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilty worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. We have some announcements. I think we only have one announcement. We want to get to know you. I mean, we really want to get to know you. So if you will, when you go out, we have a table out there. And if you would fill out a, a card, we would love to spend a few, few moments with you and uh, answer any questions you might have. So please avail yourself of that. Now, I'm up here because I have this incredible honor. And I don't know if you remember Josh last time, but he was gracious enough about six months-ish or so ago to teach us when we went through our, our month-long series in the Psalms. And so, Josh, come on up here. So the, the great thing about Josh is he's just a prince of a man. He taught us a great message last time. But my favorite thing is he brought his whole family this time, and they're the most adorable people you ever met. So his wife Amanda's over here, and he's got four kids. Now, I was struggling to figure out where Josh got these kids' names. So his daughter's name is Grace, 
Then his other daughter's name is Eden, and he's got a son, Noah, and a son, Nehemiah. So I'm not sure if you guys can figure out the common denominator, but anyway, um, if you would give it up to Josh, we're excited to, to have you here, Josh, and thank you, brother, and let me, let me say a quick prayer for you. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for a church like the Village Church that so generously shares good teachers. We're thankful for Josh and eager to hear his teaching, and we pray today that our, our ears and our hearts will be just wide open and blown away by your word. So, Father, be with Josh as he delivers this message, but really use him, channel him, work through him so that the hearers of this message hear and see you. Father, we're thankful, we're blessed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Funny story, when um, we were in the hospital after we had our fourth, the nurse asked what his, name's gonna, what his name is, and we said, Nehemiah, and she's like, whoa, we had to dig real deep in the Bible for that one, didn't you? And we're like, actually... No, it's in the table of contents. We're not here to judge. Um, it's good to be back with you today. Whereas as you can see from the scripture reading, we're going to be in Acts 13. And just to quickly get you all up to speed, we're about halfway through the book of Acts. Saul has been converted to Paul, and he's been paired with Barnabas and sent from Antioch on their first missionary journey. They left from Antioch to a city named Salamis on the island of Cyprus, and they traveled across Cyprus, preaching the gospel along the way to a city called Paphos. And that's where we're going to pick it up again, and I'll read it in verse 13. We have a ton of ground to cover, so let's just, let's just jump right in. It says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul and Barnabas left Paphos for Perga, and they went on from Perga and came to Antioch. Now, this is a different Antioch than the one from which they were just sent. This one is in Asia Minor, and Asia Minor is a small peninsula in Western Asia. Most of it would be what we considered modern-day Turkey. So on the Sabbath after Paul and Barnabas arrived in Antioch, Paul heads to the synagogue where the Jewish people gathered. And as, and as he was there, he was asked by the leaders to give a word of encouragement or a, a sermon. And what follows is Paul's first recorded sermon in the, in the book of Acts. And you can divide it into three big movements, with the first movement being in verses 16 through 25. And so for this morning, we're just going to spend a lot of our time just hearing how Paul unpacks the gospel and proclaims it. Because there are things here that are encouraging, instructive, and corrective for us. As a reminder, before we get into this, the, the audience is, is Jewish or very familiar with the Jewish religion and customs. So Paul starts in a place that would be for them extremely familiar. Let's pick it back up, verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, the God of the people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their, their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. 
And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified, I found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what, what do you suppose that I am? I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. So I, I teach the kids at, at the village, and whenever I teach them, I try to teach them things to look for when they're reading their Bibles. And one of the things I, t- I tell the kids to look for that will help them understand a passage is to look for repeated words or phrases or ideas. And what we just read is a great example of this repetition. Because right from the outset of Paul's sermon, there's this repetition that almost functions like a rhythm or a cadence. And Paul uses this cadence to drive a particular point home. God or a reference to God is in every verse from verse 17 through 22 as Paul describes Israel's history. Now this shows me that Paul is going out of his way to show that God is actively involved in directing history, right? In the theater of history, it's God that is on center stage. And this is clear by how Paul describes Israel's past. Paul says that Israel didn't just have judges, God gave them judges. He says the Israelites didn't just have a lot of babies, God made them great. He says that Israelites didn't just move into the promised land, God plowed the way. He says Saul didn't just stop being king, God removed him. This is is a way of looking at history in light of the sovereign God that directs it. And there's a word for this. It's providence. God's providence over the lives and well-being of his people as he moves and acts and directs them throughout history towards his purposes. Now, this isn't only true on the wide scale of world history. It's also true on the personal scale of our own history as he directs and moves through the things around us. That's what we're told in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, where God is said to work all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, to be sure, there's a lot of mystery with this. But I think we can still reflect on our own individual histories in much the same way Paul reflected on his, on on Israel's. My wife and I didn't just move to Orange County. God moved us there. We didn't just start attending the village church. God placed us there. We didn't just have four kids. God gave us those four kids. This is a way of reflecting on history in light of his promise, in light of his providence. And I know what, what some of you might be thinking, and, and, and I'm well aware of what I'm saying. Not all of our, our history is good. In fact, some of our history is, is, is really, really bad. What of God's providence then? In, in 2020, I lost my dad to brain cancer. And, and we watched him just, just kind of slowly slip away. 
the cancer was was so brutal that we had to 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 break the news to him that it was incurable several times because the cancer kept making him forget it. I was in the room holding his hand when he stopped breathing. And leading up to the year anniversary of this, I was talking to a guy about it, just kind of unpacking these things and recapping it all. And he stopped and he asked me, he said, where was God in all this? What was he doing? He wasn't asking in a way that was accusing God of negligence or evil, but he asked it in a way that reminded me that even this part of my history wasn't devoid of the providence of God. That even in that, God was still there and he was still working. I think he was there showing me the ugliness of death so that I could rejoice more deeply in Christ's victory over the grave. I think he was teaching me to make sure that I tell my kids I love them because one day I won't be there to tell them in person. I think he was telling me, showing me that one day it's going to be me laying in that bed. And on that day, so many things that I think are important now won't be important at all. So I should spend my time on things that I won't regret when I'm dying. Don't get me wrong. I don't know all of what God was and is doing, but looking back, I think I know some of it. I know some of you here have walked through or are walking through things that are much, much worse. I want to just take a minute to just remind you that even this part of your life isn't outside the providence of God. In this passage, Paul shows us a picture of how God is working through history towards a purpose. That purpose shown in verse 23 of fulfilling the promise of sending a Savior. And we know that still today, now, God is still working towards a purpose. In Ephesians 1, it tells us that his purpose is to reconcile all things in Christ. Now, knowing this lays purpose and direction over everything in our lives, even the darkest parts. And knowing there's a purpose creates new opportunities to see God's goodness in fresh new ways. The way John Piper says this is so good that I'm not even going to try and say it any better. He said, when we hear God say that he works all things according to the counsel of his will, And then we see him doing this very thing countless times in his word and in his world. We are given a worldview with stunning implications. Everything, absolutely everything relates to God. As R.C. Sproul would often say, there are no maverick molecules, nor are there any maverick athletes or actors or singers or presidents or scholars or street people. All are in the sway of God's all-pervasive providence. All things and all persons fit into God's all-embracing plan. That is where ultimate meaning is found. If we're going to understand anything at the most important level, we start with this reality. God created the world, holds it in existence, and governs all of it for his purposes. Everything relates to everything because everything relates to God. The knowledge of this and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Where this is denied, all knowledge is enveloped in a cloud of folly. Where it is affirmed, the possibilities of profound, amazing, beautiful, and helpful insights abound. Part of the power 
of looking over history in light of God is that you start to see his purpose and goodness and wisdom and glory in places and in ways you may not have seen it before, both in world history and in our history. Paul uses this as the jumping off point, showing that God, that the God that was working then is the God now working and sending us the promised Savior. And with verses 24 and 25, there's a transition from the past to the present. And with that, we'll transition from the first movement of the sermon to the second. Let's pick it up again in verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent this message of salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. God raised him from the dead. For many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are now his witnesses to the people. Here in verse 26, Paul says, uh, t- uh, says that, to him, t- that to him, to them has been given this message of salvation. And he starts to unpack the gospel in a very structured way. Scholars call this structure the kerygma, which is the Greek word for proclamation. It's the standard apostolic formula for preaching Christ. It starts with Jesus, the Son of God. He lived a blameless life and yet was crucified at the hands of Pontius Pilate. He was buried and was raised, then was seen by witnesses. We see this formula used by Peter in Acts 2, and we see it later on, most notably in the Bible, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The the point that has to be made here is that when Paul is preaching the gospel, he is no innovator. He's not trying to reinvent it in new and fresh ways showing us that the power of the gospel is not in the man, it's in the message. It's not in who's preaching, it's in who is being preached. I came up with a couple more of these. Um, It's not in the one saying, it's in the one saving. It's not in the one preaching, it's in the one reaching. From heaven down to us. You can pick one and tweet it. But we can't miss the reality that when Paul preached the gospel, he was declaring facts. These are things that actually happened. And this separates Christianity from everything else. It's not a religion founded on self-actualization or or self-fulfillment or new ideology or a new set of ethics. Christianity is grounded on a foundation of historical events, and to preach it as anything less than or other than that empties it of its power. These events were prophesied long before they occurred, and that's where Paul goes next. The events of the gospel were prophesied through a promise. Let's pick it up, verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God had promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to see corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. 
but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. The promise that's in view is a promise that God made to David, or what we call the Davidic covenant. This is the through line that Paul used to pull everything together for his audience. 2 Samuel 7, 16, a promise was made to King David. It says, and your house and your kingdom shall be sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The most important aspect of this promise is that it spoke of eternity. And it was significant to the Jewish people because it helped shape this anticipation of a king from the line of David that would rule over an eternal kingdom. Now, this is the backdrop that Paul is preaching against. The audience was well aware of the promises God made to their ancestors. They were waiting for this promised son of David that would rule over God's kingdom forever. Knowing that, Paul says in verse 32, that the good news he's bringing them is the fulfillment of this very promise. Paul is showing them that the full realization of their religion is in Jesus. And he lays down three scriptural proofs related to the resurrection to prove that Jesus is the one they've been waiting from for. From Psalm 2-7, Isaiah 55-3, and Psalm 16-10, respectively. These collectively demonstrate that because Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he has been inaugurated as king, he will receive the eternal promised kingdom, and is the promised Messiah. And we know that these texts aren't talking about David because David died and then stayed dead. But Jesus didn't. The resurrection of Jesus is proof that he is who they were waiting for. That's the end of the second movement of the sermon. And then Paul transitions to the third and final movement, the appeal. Let's read it, verses 30 and 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. After all the history and the promises fulfilled, Paul brings it all down to a personal application, an appeal to accept the benefits made available to them in Christ. The first benefit being the forgiveness of sin. Through faith in Jesus, we receive a pardon on all of our sin in our past and in our future, no matter how dark or how deep or how shameful or how far we've gone. They are all washed away by Jesus. This morning at the Village Church, we sang, our sins, they are many, your mercy is more. More than the worst things I've done and will do, Jesus covers it all. The second benefit is freedom from everything we cannot be free from by the law. And one of the interesting things here is that this word for free is the same word that is more commonly translated as justified. So essentially what's being said here is that we are justified through our faith in Jesus rather than our works of the law. Justification is to be declared righteous by God and carries with it the idea of becoming acceptable to him. So what Paul is saying is nothing short of incredible. He's saying that we are made acceptable to God, not by the good things that we've done. We can't work ourselves out of guilt. This is even showing how our law works. If I, if I get pulled over for, for speeding and the officer walks to my window, I don't say, well, I may have been speeding, but I'm not high. Because it doesn't matter. 
right? It doesn't matter the good things that I've done. I can't work myself out of that guilt. And that's what Paul is saying. All the good things that you've done, you cannot erase all the guilt from the bad things that you have done. You are striving for nothing. Now, keep in mind who Paul is preaching to. These people have built their lives around the law, working and striving to keep it so that they can earn their favor from God. Something Paul says can never be done. This is where their Jewish religious system came up short. The fatal flaw in their system is the fatal flaw in every system. Because every other religious system outside of Christianity puts the emphasis on me becoming good enough. This is at the heart of the gospel. By faith, my sins are forgiven. And by faith, Christ's sacrifice makes me righteous and acceptable to God. That's what Paul preached. It's powerful in simplicity and it's purity. This gospel presentation by Paul forces us to reconsider how we preach the gospel ourselves. I remember going to a men's conference when I was a young Christian. And there was this really, really popular pastor preaching. And at the climax of his sermon in a crowded auditorium, he started yelling, is your marriage broken? Come to Jesus. Have your kids gone wayward? Come to Jesus. Did you lose your job? Come to Jesus. And I remember seeing men running down to the stage. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, that's how you preach the gospel. But, but now I look back at that and I cringe. Because the gospel that was being preached was come to Jesus and he'll fix all your problems. And I wonder of all those men that ran down to the stage that morning, how many of them walked away six months later because their marriage was still a train wreck and their kids were still gone, but they still didn't have a job? How many of them walked away thinking that the gospel didn't work for them? Don't, don't, don't get me wrong. God can work in us to heal and restore marriages God can draw our kids to himself. God can meet our needs through the things and the people around us. But that's not the point. All of that is secondary. What was impressed on my soul as I read Paul's sermon is the question, do we miss it? When we reflect on the gospel, are we missing the main point? The primary offer of the gospel is that in Jesus is blood-bought forgiveness and freedom from the consequences of our sin. So how about instead of come to Jesus because your marriage is broken, we preach come to Jesus because we're all guilty. We preach come to Jesus because we all sinned in word, in thought, in deed. We preach, come to Jesus because we stand fully deserving the righteous wrath from a holy God. But in love and mercy, God sent his son to stand in our place, to take our punishment and offer us deliverance from the things that we justly deserve. So that he can turn to us who place our trust in him and say, you're perfect, you're spotless, you're righteous, you're holy, you're my son, you're my daughter, you're mine. How about you come to Jesus for that? And then we'll work on your marriage. And we'll pray and we'll weep over your children. 
and we'll work to figure out your finances. The blessings we have in Christ are far and wide, and we should preach them and remind each other of them consistently, but they're all secondary to the forgiveness of sin and freedom from guilt because even those things don't terminate on themselves. It's not just about escaping judgment. Last time I was with you, I told you with the older of my two sons. He was three at the time. He's turned turned four, and he's a tough kid. He's probably in, in one of your kids' classes, like, stealing from wallets and looking for matches. I love him, but he's shady. Super shady. We play fights sometimes, and sometimes I just punch him in the stomach just to show him who's alpha. Keep that in the back of your mind. Um, he tries to flex on me. I was making him breakfast one morning, and I had one of those frozen waffles. I put it in the toaster, and before I pushed it down, he grabbed me and says, no, I eat it cold. And so I handed him a frozen waffle, and without breaking eye contact, takes a bite out of a frozen waffle. I'm like, okay, Bear grills, Savage. Um, around Halloween, I caught him sneaking candy after he was told not to. I took him aside, and I kneeled down so that we were eye to eye. And I just started narrating his sin back to him. And he started to see what he did wrong and why it was wrong. And, and, and I know this because I could see the tears starting to well up in his eyes. And I told him, I said, hey, buddy, because of your disobedience, you deserve to get punished, right? And he nodded. He said, yeah. And I said, but this time, I, I'm not going to punish you. I'm going to give you grace. I'm going to give you mercy. And at that, I expected him to stop crying. But he didn't. He cried harder. And I asked him, why are you crying? I told you I'm going to give you mercy and you aren't going to get in trouble. And at this point, he's crying so hard he can't even speak. So I grabbed him by the shoulders and I looked him in the eyes. I said, son, I love you. I forgive you. I'm not angry with you. Instantaneously, the tears stopped. I brought him in for a hug. And in that moment, it dawned on me. Because I realized that even at three years old, he didn't just want freedom for consequences. He wanted to be reconciled. He wanted a restoration with with his father. The The forgiveness, the freedom, the justification in Jesus not only saves us from punishment, they end with us enjoying a restored relationship with God. How about we come to Jesus for that? The beauty of the gospel and simplicity and purity. But there's a warning there. This good news forces a response. Pick it up, verse 40. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. This quote comes from Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. And in it, God is warning his people of impending judgment. And it's applied here with the exact same intent. Paul is warning the audience that a non-response to the good news of Jesus Christ leaves them under the pending judgment from God on their sin. Same is true for us today. The gospel, as, as good as it is, forces a response. And in this case, a non-response is still 
a response. Because the question that needs to be asked is, in light of the good found in the gospel, what are we left with if we reject it? Keep going. Verses 42 to 43. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The people were intrigued by Paul's sermon, and they wanted to have him back next week. Many of those who were in the audience followed Paul and Barnabas, and it says that they urged them to, quote, continue in the grace of God, or hold fast to the grace of God in the gospel. Now, this is really interesting, because remember, he's in Antioch of Pisidia. It's on the coast of Asia Minor, and I didn't mention it earlier, but this Antioch is in the province called Galatia. And it's widely held that the letter to the Galatians was written to the churches Paul visited on this very missionary journey. It's widely held that the book of Galatians was written to these people that were included in the people that we see here in Acts 13. And if you're familiar at all with the book of Galatians, this should grab your attention. Because continuing in the grace of God was exactly the problem Paul wrote to address, in, 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 to address in the letter to those churches. Galatians 1 verse 6 says this, I am astonished that you, so, you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. In our passage, Paul and Barnabas encouraged the people to continue in the grace of of God, but we know that from the book of Galatians, they didn't. They departed from it. After having first come to faith in the gospel, they departed from grace and thought they needed to, to add to their faith obedience to the law. Now, this, this is extremely instructive for us because it shows us, shows us that if we aren't over time purposefully continuing in the grace of God found in the gospel, if we aren't consistently reminding ourselves of the grace we have in the gospel, our hearts can drift away into cold, dead, routine striving. Listen, the gospel is not just what gets you in the door before you move on to bigger things. We, we never outgrow grace because when we leave grace, we tend to replace it again with law. We elevate law and look to our good works to make us feel like we're good enough. We do the exact same thing that happened here in Galatians, except we don't use the law of Moses. We tend to make up our own law. It's, it's subtle. But the most common way I see this work itself out is we make up our own rules on what it means and what it looks like to be a good Christian. We figure out the two or three or four or ten things that make us think to ourselves, if I, don't, if I just do these things and I don't do these things, I'm good enough. But what happens is that we tend to give ourselves to all kinds of sin after we've met our own standards. We've made a system to make ourselves good through our own obedience to our own law. And that's why we get these crazy inconsistencies in our lives. If I can use an example from 1997, 12-year-old Josh would never walk into a warehouse music and steal a CD. 
but he would download the album from Napster, burn it onto a CD, and sling it at school the next day. And I, I, I think I just lost like everyone under 30, because you guys know, have no idea who, what, what Warehouse Music is or Napster. Um, okay, okay, you with me? Thank you. I see blank stares, but I have no idea. Um, okay, an example from 2022. Feeling okay to type and post something on social media you know is not okay to say in person. See, it's easy to justify ourselves and make ourselves feel good enough when we've created a law to do it. The grace in the gospel rescues us from this by reminding us that, that, that we've already been made good enough and it sets our aim on something higher, something better, knowing and loving Jesus. And this produces fruit of good works in our lives that the law could not. The exhortation from Paul and Barnabas is well suited to us. Continue in the grace of God. That's why we preach the gospel to ourselves. That's why we're in community with people that remind us of the grace of God, because Get back to the text, verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God has been spoken to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul and Barnabas are invited back next week to continue speaking in the synagogue, but this time there were way more people there to hear them. The indication is that the news of Paul's sermon had spread throughout the city during the week. And there was this massive crowd in place to hear him. And narratively, Luke is showing us two reactions to the preaching of the word of the Lord. The first reaction in verse 45. Some of of the Jewish people saw the crowds and were jealous. Now, there's reason to believe that the particular issue that these Jewish people took offense to was the inclusion of the Gentiles and the benefit of the promises made to Israel. So it wasn't just a matter of Paul and Barnabas' popularity. It was a matter of their religion's exclusivity. The grace of God that was being universally offered was offensive to them. When they saw the large crowd that, as we will read, was full of Gentiles, they were angry and publicly slandered and opposed Paul. But Paul and Barnabas took this opposition as the indicator that it's time to move on to the Gentiles. And upon hearing this, we see the second reaction to the word of the Lord. Verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. As many as were appointed to the eternal life believed. Next reaction we see here is from the Gentiles and its celebration. They were celebrating that they were included in God's plan of redemption. Luke records that as many of them were appointed as were appointed to salvation were saved. I think Luke is drawing our attention, uh, and I think what Luke is drawing our attention to by speaking of salvation in this way is to show us that that public opposition did absolutely nothing to stop God's purposes. That's why the next thing Luke says in verse 49 is, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. 
The gospel has the power to penetrate any sphere that we bring it into. That, let's finish up, verses 50 to 52. But the Jews incited the devout, men, uh, the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. They shook off the dust from their feet against them and went into Iconium. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Some of the Jewish people in the city incited some high-profile women and men against Paul and Barnabas, and that created persecution that ended up getting Paul and Barnabas driven out of the city. And if we read this like Paul read history, we can be confident that the reason they were driven out was that God determined that their work was done and it was time to move on. By being driven out of the city, they were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. I've been kicked out of only one place my entire life. And I can guarantee you it wasn't in joy with the Holy Spirit. This is, this is strange. This isn't normal. Here, opposition couldn't stop God's purposes, and it couldn't discourage his people either. In the face of opposition, the gospel progresses with joy. If I can, if I can say it just... Plainly, it's, it's texts like this that make me wonder if we worry too much. Right? There, there are a lot of things happening around us to worry about. There's a lot of opposition. But even in the face of opposition, we still see these disciples characterized by joy. Do we, do we worry too much about the liberties we might lose or the benefits that we have that might get taken away? Does it all just get us angry and depressed and scared and anxious and worried? Do we, as believers in the sovereignty of God, allow our worry and our fear and our anxiety to quench our joy? Don't, don't get me wrong. I, I don't want to be flippant, and I certainly don't want to be dismissive. Some of these things are are very serious. Our joy should be a sober-minded joy, aware of the dangers around us, and on guard, and intentional, and wise, and at times righteously angry. But we can be all of that and still be a people marked by the Holy Spirit in the confidence that our God's purposes will stand, and that we've been reconciled to our Holy Father who loves us more than we know and walk in joy. And I want that for King's Cross. I want that for the Village Church. I want to be a people marked by joy, singing and worshiping with generosity and on mission, centered on the gospel, trusting in the providence of God. And I don't know how to do it outside of the grace. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.